many of you know, and some of you don't know, but in college, I was a, a physics major. And for four years, I was trained to understand the world through the true science, which is physics. It's the science which seeks to take all of life and explain it. It seeks to try to understand how objects will behave in certain circumstances, what, what temperatures will react to, how metal will act and conduct, how, how space will respond. And we often saw it in our physics study is to take all of life around us and reduce it down to the, the very choicest minimum formulas that we could that would explain the universe and how it is. Taking the, the complex world, reducing it down to simple form. And indeed, when you understand the simple, the complex then comes to mind. And I think about the Bible, and I think it's a, it's a complex book. I mean, you look at how, how thick it is, and it's, it's a lot. If you want to read through it in a year, it takes you 15 minutes to read every day out loud, like our family's done, like some of you also have done. It, it takes a long time. It's a big book, and it's fairly complex. And people have tried over the years to try to synthesize it down. And there are some Christians within the body of Christ who place much emphasis upon the Ten Commandments. I mean, they, they think the Ten Commandments is, is everything. I mean, after all, in Exodus chapter 20, this is what God wrote with His very finger. And those that look upon the Ten Commandments place great emphasis upon all of them, right? Even the first commandment, don't have any other gods before me. They speak long about that, of how we ought to have no source of spiritual strength except God. The second commandment, you shall have no idols. Right? We ought to bow to nothing else except the Lord. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which is the commandment number three. And they go on, the fourth commandment, right? And, and they say that you need to devote one day in seven to the worship of God. They go on to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother and speak of children behaving properly before their parents. And they go on, the, the sixth commandment, right? Don't murder. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The eighth commandment, do not steal. The ninth commandment, don't bear false witness or don't lie. And they place much emphasis upon these commandments. As like when it all comes down to it, there are ten commandments you need to really live by. And even the tenth one, you shall not covet. Right? It speaks about your contentment with the things you have. Now, I think in many ways these ten commandments are a good condensation of how we are to live. I think they really, they really help us with that. I think probably better, though, they help show us our sin more than anything else. But they give us some sort of, of grid to pass life through. But I would disagree, in fact, strongly, that these are the commandments that you ought to focus your heart and your mind upon. Because Jesus distilled it down even further to two which he called, it's interesting, he called it one. The sermon title this morning is called The Great Commandment. It's one commandment, which is to love with two parts. And I get that from Matthew chapter 22. If you haven't opened there in your Bibles, I invite you to open your Bibles there. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, is a, we find ourselves in a section of Scripture where the religious leaders have come to Jesus to ask Him theological questions to try to trap Him, to try to trip Him up. 
Right? In fact, it says in chapter 22, verse 15, the, the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what they said. And they asked this question about taxes. And they wanted to get Jesus in trouble, right? Can you pay taxes or not? If he said no, the Herodians who represent the Roman Empire will be angry with him. They say yes, the Jews who pay their taxes will be angry with him. It's a, a question to trap. I think also of that next section, verse, beginning in verse 23, when the Sadducees came to ask questions of Jesus, right? They were trying to trap Jesus. Is the resurrection really true, Jesus? And they wanted him to decide because a division existed between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And they wanted Jesus to side with the Sadducees. Obviously, the resurrection is not true. He answered in a marvelous way that said the resurrection is true in such a way to turn the tables on the Sadducees. In fact, we read at the beginning of our text this morning in verse 34 that the Sadducees have been put to silence because of his tremendous answer to that question of the resurrection. And I think the Pharisees at this would probably have been encouraged in some sense. The Sadducees were somewhat their enemies. And uh, to see them silenced was a good thing for them. And yet also it probably would have been discouraging. If Jesus can silence the Sadducees, boy, he's, he's good because he silenced one of us already. But what they did here in verse 34 is they, they huddled like in a football huddle. They gathered them together and, and they sought a new plan. Okay, let's come to him with a, another question. Maybe one he can't answer this question comes in verse 35, when a lawyer, that is an expert in the law, right? one who knew the law, right? they, they sent the brightest and the smartest to Jesus. And this man asked him a question, and here it is, testing him. This was, again, he had a third test that was put to Jesus. And the test is this, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment in the law? Now, What's different about this question and the others is that this question's like open-ended. The other questions were either or. Is it okay to pay taxes? Yes or no. Is the resurrection true? Yes or no. But all of a sudden on this one, it's like, which is the best? You've got all of them. And I believe the open-endedness of the question is precisely where the test comes in. See, for years, the Jews had debated this question. They had debated which commandment was the best, and some postured themselves some places and some in other places. You can see that even over in Matthew 23, verse 23, when Jesus denounces a woe upon, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. See, in their mind, tithing was elevated as like the most important commandment and forget justice and mercy and faithfulness. I mean, those are important, but what's really important is how you deal with your checkbook, tithing. Through our, our, our uh, traveling through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen how even sometimes they elevated the Sabbath above everything else. You remember when Jesus healed people? And there was great compassion and good done upon them. They were angered at Jesus because he had the audacity to heal on the Sabbath. What a wicked thing he did. And do you see what they're doing? They're placing the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, above even mercy and grace. Jesus said, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Just trying to flip those. It's, it's compassion, it's not sacrifice, which is important. 
And perhaps there are others, even at that time, who thought that the gathering of the people three times a year in Jerusalem to worship was the most important thing. I mean, after all, if you think about Israel, Isaiah tells us that they had kept the form long, long after they had lost the heart. Why? Because the, the motions of going through the ritual was the most important thing. Maybe some thought the sacrifices were the most important. I, I guess probably some of the priests would have thought the sacrifice was the most important because that's where they get their food. Right? The priests come, they offer up some, they get to eat. If they don't offer sacrifices, then they don't get to eat. Maybe the sacrifices were the big thing. There was a big dilemma, and I'm sure that the, the Pharisees who asked this question were hoping one thing. Hoping that he'd say something that would, would, would cause some division. Right? Maybe he says tithing is the most important, and then it's going to create a division among us, and some of us, most of us are going to hate him. Or maybe the Sabbath. Or maybe even better yet, Jesus might develop a new commandment which would be like not found in the law and said, this is the great commandment. And then it would be found to be, found to be a, an extra biblicist. Right? He's saying that something other than the Bible is true. And there is some reason why they may have anticipated that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, the, authority, the ancients have told you this, but I say to you this. Kind of maybe hoping that he's going to say something else. Some kind of response to get Jesus in trouble. Well, how he responds here in verses 37 through 40 is masterful. He says things so simple and yet so profound. Listen to what he says in verse 37. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophet. Well, they're so simple, in fact, they can be memorized. In fact, shut your Bibles right now. Shut, shut them. You can keep your finger in there so you don't have to chase through Matthew again. But Jesus said there are two great commandments. One commandment. They're all part of the same. What's the first one? Let's say it together. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Literally, like hardly any of you who didn't even say that. How about this? What's the second one? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, simple, right? I mean, you, you've memorized those. I'm not sure if you've worked hard at that, whether you just remember from what I say, but you've memorized them. They're so simple, but they're profound. I mean, think about this. He says here in verse 40, you can open up your Bibles again to Matthew 22. Look at verse 40 to how profound these are. It says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything hangs on these things. You can take all the commandments in the law, you can take every single one of the exhortations of the prophets, and fundamentally they are derived from one of these two commands, love God or love others. There's not a command given in the Old Testament that doesn't come down to one of these two. I just want to show you this. I just pick a verse that I read this past week. Exodus 21, verses 33 through 34. Okay, just kind of picked it out of the blue. I mean, I was translating through this Hebrew passage in my regular weekly Hebrew reading, and here's what I came upon. I said, this will be a good verse. If a man opens a pit 
or digs a pit and does not cover it over, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner and the dead animals to become his. Right? You just think about that for a little bit, and you can realize that it all comes down to loving your neighbor as yourself. You Suppose someone else dug this pit, and your, your animal is out there walking around, falls in there and dies. What, would you, what, you want, what, what do you want? You want your animal back. Well, your animal's dead. It can't come back. Well, with God, all things are possible, okay? He can resurrect animals, but he doesn't, okay? Your animal is, is dead. You want it back. So what, what do we do? The other guy gives you money, buys the animal. He takes the dead one because that's his fault, and then you have money, you can buy a new animal. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. Or how about another one from our Bible reading this past week? We're in Hosea, and we read this this past week. I just kind of pulled one. Listen, Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Fundamentally, what was the problem with Israel? They didn't love God. And not loving God, they just, you know, ditched Him, let Him go away. They forgot about Him and pursued their own things. And then God said the consequence of that says, you forgot me, I'm going to forget you. Right? But fundamentally, it comes down to this. They didn't love the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their soul and all of their mind. Now, this response of Jesus really isn't anything new, though it is simple and profound. It wasn't something brand new. He'd said this before in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 12. He said, however you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus distilling it down just even to loving your neighbor as yourself is the law and the prophets. It's not new for Jesus. It's not new for Paul. Paul picked up on this. Well, maybe it was new for Paul, but he learned it and he picked up on it. And several times in his writings, he said the same thing about, it's not about the Ten Commandments, it's about the two commandments. It's about these two things. Listen to Romans 13, verse 8 through 10. He takes some of the Ten Commandments, and they, but he distills it down into the two. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it's summed up by this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of a law. And you see, even now Paul centered it all down. You say, You want to know what the Christian life is all about? It's about love. Paul summarized it in Galatians 5.14. We read in our prayer meeting this morning, which, by the way, you're invited to. It's not a closed meeting at all. We had about 30 folks this morning. would really encourage you to come to that. If God's going to build this church, you're going to build it as we plead and pray with Him. So I encourage, please come. Please come. But we said this, Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One word, fulfilling the whole law. James said it too. If you're fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. That's James chapter 2, verse 8. When Jesus said this, it wasn't new for him. Paul picked up on it. But it's also interesting. When Jesus said this, it wasn't new for the Jews either. The Jews knew this. In fact, first of all, both of these commandments, if you will, were Old Testament quotations. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. 
The second from Leviticus 19, verse 18. The Jews knew these commandments, and furthermore, the Jews even prioritized these commandments. The first commandment, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, is often repeated by Jews even today. In fact, this is so often repeated that this phrase has its own name. Do you know what it's called? What's it called? It's called the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Eloheinu Adonai, Eloheinu Ahad. That's, that's like how it starts. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in fact, the Jews so much today, they, they put phylacteries around themselves. They wrap up these prayers. They have little boxes here because it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I think it's verse 8 and 9, right? You shall write them in your hands. Bind them around your forehead. Write them on. And so what they do is they, they put boxes on their forehead and they wrap it around their head and they wrap it around their arms. And so they pray with these things. And do you know what's in those boxes? These words right here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when they go to pray, the Western Wall or wherever they, they pray, these words were familiar to the Jews and, and the Jews even prioritized these words. So it wasn't a new thing that Jesus said. And the second commandment here about loving your neighbor as yourself from an obscure law back in Leviticus chapter 19. They placed great priority on this as well. A rabbi Hillel lived during the time of Jesus in A.D. 20. He was one time challenged by an antagonistic Gentile who said, your law is like so confounded and so difficult and so much. I tell you what, could you explain the whole law while you stand on one foot? got to say the whole law. You know what he says? This is what he said. I'd quote if I haven't memorized this yet. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Even a rabbi in Jewish day was taking all the law, all the teaching, and distilling it into one. The form may be different than exactly what Jesus said, but the thrust is the same. This wasn't anything new to Jesus. In fact, in Mark's account here of Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus responded to this, you know what the lawyer said? He said, you're exactly right. Right, teacher, you have stated that he is one and there's no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So it wasn't new. The Jews had synthesized it all down to the simplicity of these two commandments. And you know what? If rightly understood, these commandments in your life will bring an amazing simplicity to how you live. Like for instance, Avon and I, as we have grown in our parenting we've discovered that the most effective question for us to press home with the kids is this. What is the loving thing to do? Guys, how many times have you heard me say that, Chris NSR? What is the loving thing to do? Do I say it a lot? A lot. Because I've come to learn about the law. It all distills to this. And so if you picture your children, like maybe ours, Right? They're fighting over some toy. They're fighting over time on the computer. In our, in our house, right, they fight for the seat next to Stephanie. And they, they just argue and they, they bicker about these things, right? They're fighting over comics in the newspaper. Here, let me have it. No, let me have it. 
arguments to each other are, are legion. I had it first. Yeah, but it's mine. But mom said I could sit here. You had your time already. It's not fair. And they go on and on and on and on. And sometimes disagreements even turn violent. Toy ripped from a hand. Child pushed from a seat. Child struck. Sometimes a chase starts around the house. Cries for help echo through the house. Commotion comes. An accident takes place. Tears and things erupt. Does this sound familiar? But regardless of the complexities, the tensions of the problem, we have found that one question solves all the difficulties. We say, kids, what's the loving thing to do? And you know what's amazing? Is our kids know what the loving thing to do is. They know what's right and they know what's wrong. Now, doing it's another matter. Right? But we, in our parenting, we have become convinced that that's the message that we want to pound home to our children. What's the loving thing to do? And the reason I think why we've embraced that, that question is really because it helps to address the heart of the matter. You know, Ted Tripp wrote this book. Uh, are you familiar with this book, Shepherding a Child's Heart? Parents, are you familiar with this book? If you're not, you better be. It's a great book. And his thesis is we need to shepherd a child's heart. In other words, we need to, to get down into the core where from the heart flow the issues of life. And so don't deal with the externals of your child's behavior. Deal with the heart of the matter. Right? When, when they're struggling for a toy, don't deal with the externals. Okay, who had it first? Justice. Right? Deal with the internal selfishness of the heart. That's what you should do. And sadly, I think there are many Christian parents who raise children to be externally obedient. And there are parenting systems which create amazingly obedient children without even dealing with the heart. And uh, if you just get externally obedient children without a heart, you're headed for trouble when they get to be 18, 19 and get out of the home. But if you get the heart, they're going to obey and they're going to delight. And you're going to be there, but you're going to teach them the right way is the heart of the matter. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking everything right down here into the heart, loving, right? And we ought to just ask ourselves, what's the loving thing to do with respect to God and with respect to man? It is interesting, this whole aspect here of love. I mean, it comes here in verse 37, you shall love the Lord. It comes in verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the great command of all of Scripture. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, Let all that you do be done in love. Everything you do should be done in love. Paul wrote to Timothy that the goal of our instruction... Right? The end of our instruction, the thing that we're getting at, and by the way, this is the thing I'm trying to do week in, week out as a pastor. The end, what I'm trying to get at is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul's talking about all these things. You've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. You should put on art of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Those are pretty good things, right? Heart of compassion, humility, and gentleness, and patience, forbearance. Isn't all that really good? But he takes of all those things, he, he elevates one above everything else. Listen to what he says, Colossians 3, 14. And beyond all these things, put on love, 
which is the perfect bond of unity. Love's a priority. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, we find out that love is better than faith and hope. Faith, hope, and love abide. Yes, they are. But the greatest of these is love. Love in the Scripture has got a great priority. We see it in the two great commandments. It comes down to loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, as you think about these things, right? they're the two dimensions in which we live. We live before God in a vertical dimension, loving Him. And we live in the horizontal plane as well, loving other people. And really, this is the application of this passage, is it not? We have to love God and we have to love others. And for the last half of my message this morning, I want to take these two points and really press them into your lives. That you love God and you love others. And before I do this, I want to just tell you and communicate to you the importance of these two commands. I mean, think about it. If this is the greatest commandment, I ask you, what's the greatest sin? Not to do these. Not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not to love your neighbor as yourself. This is like the greatest sin you need to fight against. It's important for you. It's not something we ought to put aside. You know, some of my sermons I preach, you might say, well, yeah, just put that one aside. Let's go. Maybe Steve will preach a better one next week. But this is not one to put aside. This is one that ought to be on your mantle, one you ought to think about and meditate on. You can't sweep it under the rug. You can't hide it in your closet. These commands are worthy of your attention this morning. But I have an inherent difficulty, though, in preaching these, is because love is a bit like jazz. The famous trumpet player Louis Armstrong was once asked about jazz. And if I had a Louis Armstrong voice, I'd say it, but I can't. Louis Armstrong said this, Man, if I got to explain it, you ain't got it. That's what jazz is. And love is the same way. If I got to explain it, you ain't got it. That's what love is. I mean, love is this affection and emotion and desire and inner being of us that will well up and express itself. You can't manufacture it. You can't suppress it. But when it's there, ooh, it's going to come out. A husband can't help but to kiss and love his wife if he's got love within him. I'd say some incriminating things. A husband can't help but to give his wife flowers if he has love within him. Speaks of my love for my wife, which I confess is not where it ought to be. Really, that's what love is. Love, when you love God, when you love others, it's going to express itself. I read recently of a man who was asked whether he was saved or not. Listen to his response. He said, well, I might be prejudiced about that question... So, you know, why don't you go and ask my wife and ask my children and ask my neighbor if I'm saved? I'll trust their answer. What a great insight. Because you're saved, it's going to manifest itself. If you love, it's going to manifest yourself, right? If someone says, do you love God? Do you love your neighbors? I think you should say, well, ask my wife, ask my children, ask my neighbors, ask my coworkers whether I love God and love my neighbors. Because if you do, it'll be manifest. It'll be clear for all to see. 
Anyway, I give you the exhortation. It's right here. Exhortation number one, love God. Love God. I have three subpoints under this, just trying to think about ways to love Him. First of all, love God by obeying Him. Love God by obeying Him. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, Steve Belanger preached this sermon for us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 it says, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to get the CD. It was excellent, right on, everything right there. Did a wonderful job. I don't need to repeat it for you this morning. If you love God, you will obey God. <clears throat> Let's be rid with the notion that we have people who don't believe God and yet love God. I was talking to a pastor this week <clears throat> who was uh, doing a funeral for a man who died and um, he didn't obey God at all. He'd been to church like twice in the past six years, had no interest in God, expressed no interest in God, but he died and his family all thought, oh, he was a Christian, what a wonderful Christian man, right? I think deceiving themselves so to think that he's in heaven, but he showed no love to God. If you love God, you will obey him. This is the love of God. We keep His commandments. It's all over Scripture. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. To profess a love for God and then not to obey is impossible. It just doesn't exist. But you know what? I don't think that this is all there is to loving God. I mean, you even think about John's statement. He put a disclaimer. He said, the commandments are not burdensome. The Pharisees were pretty good <clears throat> at keeping the commandments. A few weeks we're going to see in Matthew chapter 23. I mean, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Therefore, Jesus, all that these Pharisees tell you to do, do and observe. But they do not do according to the deeds. They say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy loads and lay on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move with so much a finger. They laid up all these burdensome commandments that even they were not able to. To bear. Do it. Do what they say, but not as they do. And you know what? There is a way, even you think about the Pharisees. It, it is interesting here that Jesus says they didn't do because the Pharisees were of any people that ever walked the planet, that I will say ever will walk the planet. They were more meticulous about law keeping than anybody. And so there was a sense where they were tremendously righteous in what they did trying to obey every single command, so much so that Paul could say to the extent of the law, I was found blameless when I was a Pharisee. Keeping all the things of the law exactly right. So they obeyed, but Jesus says here they didn't obey. It's because of the way that they obeyed. Because there's a way to obey and there's a way not to obey, though obeying. Does that make sense? One way to obey is to make it a duty and one way to obey is to make it a delight. One way to obey is to do what you don't want to do. And another way to obey is to do what you want to do. Like last night, for instance. SR turns 9 tomorrow. And so we've invited young boys here to church to his party. And um, our cousins and things like that. And uh, one of the things that we're going to do, it's a space party. And um, I was trying to think of games. And one of the games we I thought of was, you know what, space objects, they, um, they're round, right? Planets are. And so I said, well, what, what if we, like, play dodgeball with planets? 
That'd be pretty fun, huh? And so what we did is we cleared out our bottom basement room so that we could play dodgeball with planets. And um, so when I told the kids last night, I said, um, you know, guys, we're pretty crunched for time and what we're doing. And, you know, mom really needs help. Could you go and ask mom for help? Oh, they, did. they went like this. I said, hey, uh, they didn't want to do that. Right? Finally, they, they well, what's the loving thing to do, right? And they go and they maybe help. What do you want? Okay, well, help change Steffi's diaper. Or go do this or go do that. But, you know, when we said, um, you know what? I'm thinking about, like, cleaning out the playroom so there's nothing in there. <gasps> oh, yeah, we'll do that, you know. And they worked so hard and so fast. It was amazing. There was a diligence and a delight about that. And so was the commandment burdensome to them? Not at all. That's how we ought to see the commands of God. You can have a wholehearted delight or you can have a half-hearted obligation. You pick it. What's it going to be? Love God by obeying Him. Second, love God by pursuing Him. I get this really from the sense of verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I can use the word pursuing. It's the best word that I could do to, to come up with kind of what he's talking about here. I'm talking about a passionate, heartfelt desire for God. Now, we could spend time here looking at what the heart is, looking at what the soul is, looking at what the mind is, and try to figure out which categories. Okay, now, when am I loving the Lord with, with my heart and when with my soul and when with my mind? And Well, what about my passions or my emotions or my intellect? And we could get all confused about all the different segregations of all these things, but really they all meld together. It's talking about you shall love the Lord your God with all of your being, everything within you, a total commitment, an all-consuming desire for God, a wholehearted passion, a mind completely consumed by God, a total radical pursuit of God. This is the type of obedience that pleases Him. In fact, look even how Jesus said this. I think it, it picks up on that. He says, with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Emphasize, he didn't say all your heart, soul, mind. He said with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, every bit of your being. In fact, it's easy to see then why Mark, when he recorded the parallel passage, added with all your strength. The sense is exactly the same. With everything that's within you, your passion and love and pursuit of God should be all-consuming. When you wake this morning, God should fill your heart. When you go about the day, God should be the joy of your soul. And when you lie down to rest at night, God should consume the thoughts of your mind. So, let me just say, you need to do this. Are there things that pull you away from your love of God? Are there things that distract you from a wholehearted, complete devotion to the Lord? Get rid of them. Get them out of the way. You're committing the greatest sin. So get rid of the television, or get rid of the internet, or get rid of the video games, or get rid of the newspaper subscription, or get rid of your your Walkmans, or get rid of your friendship, or get rid of your hobby, or get rid of your job. It's distracting you from the Lord. Now get another job, okay? Don't be like the Thessalonians. The Lord's coming. and Get a job. But if the job you have is distracting you from wholehearted service to the Lord, can the job? I mean, what's more important? There's a sin you're holding on to. Repent of it today. Find mercy and grace, forgiveness of sins at the cross of Christ. If there are avenues to foster your love for the Lord, do them. 
know, whatever. Read the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Attend church functions. You know, most of the activities we have at church, most of them, are geared to building you up in your walk of faith the Lord. In recent weeks, we've started flocks or home Bible studies. They're intended to serve to cultivate relationships within the church and to cultivate a love for God. If you're not, you can join one. Join one today. Tonight, we've got one at our house. Come 6 o'clock. You're more than welcome. And that's to cultivate a wholehearted love towards God. There are many opportunities. In fact, there are so many opportunities that you're going to have to choose which ones are going to help foster your love for God. Because you can't do them all. I mean, you can be overwhelmed with all the different things. You have to read and study and this and that and go. and You can be overwhelmed, okay? You've you got to choose. But if other things are pulling you away and you're making a bad choice, like choosing to be interested in um, something else on Sunday night rather than a flock or, you know, whatever, Friday night's always the night I do this and, you know what, I could be doing this and it, in the whole scheme of your life. Your Friday night's really not being spent very well. Spent a different way. Maybe maybe do that. Or, or in the, the scope of your day. I mean, how many times have I told you this? 15 minutes a day you read through the whole Bible. Is there a 15-minute slot in the day which you can maybe carve out from reading? Or is 15 minutes too much for you? It's astonishing how people profess to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet 15 minutes, it's not there. And not that you have to read the Bible with 15 minutes. Okay, other things. But oftentimes, you know, we live our lives as if God isn't there, and yet we profess that. You know, how many think, you know, what? I, I, I'm, trying, I'm stretching now, right? They, they play at their worship, they worship their work, and they, whatever. You heard that before? I'll get it next time, I'm sorry. But anyway, people, people just don't worship the Lord. All their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And maybe you need to make a covenant with God like Josiah did. Second Chronicles 34, 31. So the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant within this book. Maybe you today need to make a covenant like Josiah did. To love the Lord your God. Let me say a final note on this point is that your pursuit of God should have no limits No limits to the passion of your pursuit of God. I mean, those who give themselves to work become workaholics. Those who give themselves to physical fitness become self-absorbed. Those who give themselves to their hobbies become obsessed. And in all those cases, they become idolaters because they're finding satisfaction, delight, pursuit, and something else other than God. You shall have the Lord your God is the only one you should serve. But you know what? If you pursue God with all of your heart, give everything into it, and pursue Him without regret, without abandon, without looking back totally to God, you can never be guilty of idolatry. Never. Don't ever think that you can pursue God too much. Psalm 63, verse 8, the King James says, My soul followeth hard after thee. That ought to be our heart's desire too, to follow hard. Hard after God. <clears throat> you love God, thirdly, by trusting Him. Romans 8.28, good old familiar. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. This verse is saying that God is sovereignly working in your life for good if you love the Lord your God. 
I mean, God is sovereign over all circumstances. But to those who love God, He works those circumstances for good. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? If you trust, if you love God, you will trust His promises. <clears throat> now, your mind might be thinking right now that, you know, maybe the promise of Scripture you've had and there's something going on in your life. You say, I'm not sure this is really good. It's good if you love God. You might be saying, well, what about the financial difficulties I, I'm having? I mean, look at those folks over there. They're, they're well off. They can buy anything they want. They're not worrying the world. God, why am I struggling financially? Well, it may just be the Lord is using this to keep you trusting in Jesus. James chapter 2 says, God did not choose, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised those who love him? See, the tendency of rich folk is that they can be conceited and fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 1 Timothy 6 17. And I think trusting in the Lord is a good thing, you think? Or maybe you say, how can my sickness be good? I mean, look at those folks over there. They feel well. They get up in the morning. They're having a care in the world. They go, they do whatever. Why am I sick? It's not because God's not sovereign. It may be just because the Lord is pushing you to trust Him with your sickness. Paul had a sickness or difficulty of some type. He prayed three times. They'd depart from Him. And God said, no, 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 I'm not. He's sovereign. He could have. But I'm not, because my grace is sufficient for you. And I believe that depending upon the Lord's grace for strength is a good thing. We think of Pastor Zhang, who uh, Steve Belanger shared about this morning. Pastor. And, uh, you know, he's, he's in prison. Share that just in the prayer meeting, right? No, you share that here, just in the prayer meeting. Pastor, house churches. Ten million people are associated with his house church movement. They just captured him this last week or month or something like that. We say, oh, that's a bad thing for Pastor Zhang. You know what? It's a good thing. Keeps him from exalting himself. Keeps him humble. Keeps him trusting in the Lord and gives untold benefits that you know nothing of. If you love God, you need to trust that He's causing the circumstances to work together for your good, for relationships, family, past experience. Whatever trouble, difficulty you've had, He's using it for good. And those who love God should trust Him in that. Well, I just say, you know, here's loving God is huge for the Christian life. We could go on and on and on. I mean, I think this past week we read through Hosea. Hosea is about a people who hated God, but God still loved them. Told them to come back. Told them to love God. And yet they didn't. They neglected. I think about Malachi offering up half-hearted worship to the Lord. They said, yeah, we're loving you. He said, no, you're offering up the lame, the dumb Animals, you know, the, the animals with the eyes poked out, right? The animals with the lame legs, like you're offering, that's not wholehearted love to me. The Jews, right? We're always resisting the Holy Spirit. They're always resisting loving God with all their hearts and minds. I mean, we could go on and on. If, if the Bible summarizes on this, we could preach on and on. But we had to get to our second point today. And I'm running out of time. But our second point is this, right? You should love others. Love others, right? Verse 39, it's clear as can be. And I think what's interesting here is that this commandment flows from the first. If you focus just on this commandment, you've lost it if you haven't focused on the first one, right? 1 John chapter 4, I think it's verse 19, says we love because God first loved us, right? 
It's from understanding our love for God, God's love for us, that's why we love. It says in 1 John 4, verse 21, This is the commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And if you don't love others, i got news for you folks, you don't love God. If you don't love others, you don't love God. That's the clear testimony of 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So yeah, if I love God, but when it works itself out, I hate my brother, you're a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I don't care how much you say, I don't care how much you profess. If you don't love others, you're a liar. Because the love of God will flow from you to others. As I've been thinking about these two commands, I think about loving God, loving others. You know, loving God is really demonstrated when you are secret and private. When nobody else is around. What do you do in private? What do you think? What do you do? If you knew that you would never be caught, what would you do? Would you commit sin? Never be caught. See, that's by alone. Because when you're alone from other people, it's just you and God. And you demonstrate whether you love Him or not. So your love for God is really an invisible, oftentimes um, alone kind of love. But your love for others, that on the other hand, is an eminently visible, visible thing. I mean, you can't love others and not be around Him. Right? When you're all alone... You can't love others. But when you're around others, that's when you can love them and that's when you can help them and that's when it will clearly show and demonstrate whether you love God or not, whether you love others. Well, I've got two reasons or two ways to love others. First is this. Be centered on others. I get this from verse 39 when Jesus says, Love your neighbor as yourself. When you truly love other people, you have to use your imagination. Okay? Imagination is a good thing. You have to use your imagination. You need to imagine yourself as another person. You need to put yourself in their situations, in their surroundings, and then try to imagine what you would like yourself to do if you were them. And sometimes it's kind of hard. I mean, I think even about... Loving your spouse. Men, you need to become like a woman. And try to put yourself in your wife's situation. And wives, you need to become like a man. And put yourself in in your husband's situation and really try to think, what would I want me to do if I were them? Children. This is hard. You've never been parents before. But you need to... Put in your mind that you're a parent and that you have little kids around you that look just like you. And you then need to think, well, if I were a parent with a small child just like me, what would I want me to do? And then you go ahead and do that. And love will do what you think others would want you to do for them. See, it's focused on other people. In the second century, there was a worldly philosopher named Aristides. Not a believer in Christ, by the way. But he observed the followers of Jesus. And he described them. Listen to how he described them. He said, They abstained from all impurity. 
in the hope of the recompense that's to come in another world. As for their servants or handmaids or children, they persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They do not worship strange gods, and they walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. When they see the stranger, they bring him into their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. For they do not call brothers those who are after the flesh, but those who are in the Spirit of God. And there is among them a man that's poor and needy. And if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast for two or three days that they may supply the needy the necessary food. They observe scrupulously the commandment of their Messiah. They live honestly and soberly as the Lord their God commands them. Every morning and all hours on account of the goodness of God towards them, they praise and laud Him. And over their food and their drink, they render Him thanks. Such is the law of the Christians and such is their conduct. Isn't that a great picture of what I'm talking about here? Fasting for a few days so that you can have money then to buy food for your needy neighbor. And I say, Rock Valley Bible Church, we're doing well in this. But I say in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians 4.10 that you excel still more in your love for others. Unless you think that your Christian love is only to be administered within the church, you need to be reminded that our love ought to be evident far and wide and ought to be extended to those outside the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So prioritize the church, but do good to all men. Do good to all men. In fact, you can even pick this up. We don't have time to turn there. But you just write in your notes. Luke chapter 10. The story of a lawyer who came to Jesus and was seeking eternal life. Jesus said, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, do that and live. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. Remember what he asked? Well, who's my neighbor? He was hoping for the response that said, well... Your friends, everybody that you know and love, those are your neighbor. And Jesus told which story? The Good Samaritan, right? You remember that story where the guy was going down to Jericho on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem and he was beaten, robbed, left half dead. The priests jumped to the other side. The Levites jumped to the other side. But the Samaritan took the man, healed his bandages, put the man on his own beast of burden and rode him to the inn and gave him to the innkeeper and says, here's some money, here, take care of him. When I come back, I'll pay you whatever is lacked. And Jesus said, then who is the neighbor? So it was a Samaritan. And so I ask you, who is the neighbor? The neighbor is anyone in need. And if you just open your eyes, there are opportunities that abound well, you love. But not only do you imagine yourself being your wife or your husband, you need to imagine yourself being your co-worker, your unsaved co-worker, and looking at yourself and saying, well, what, what would be the loving thing for me to do to him, to her? Maybe you need to imagine yourself a, an orphan in a Nepalese orphanage saying, oh, I, I guess, you know, what would I like people at Rock Valley Bible Church to do? Maybe adopt, help a child, maybe fund and help them. And they're growing up without parents. What, would they, what do they need? They long for, they love. They, they need, that's what they need. Right? You imagine yourself there, what's the loving thing to do? Loving things to help. Now, obviously, with that, you, 
You can't do everything. And you need to selectively choose what you want to do. But your love will cause you to sacrifice greatly of yourself to do that. I think about foreign exchange students coming from poor countries. I know of one student who's come from a very poor country. And uh, he's over here. He can work kind of a part-time job. Government's helping him in schooling. And he saves his money. He lives little. And he supports his family back home. And he supports a pastor full-time. Of what he earns here, working as a student, loving his home people, and supporting a pastor. It's like a poor foreign exchange student. I say, Rock Valley Bible Church, can't we do more? A great story here. We've been reading, some of the men have been reading five pioneer missionaries. Great story about David Brainerd, William Burns, John Elliott, Henry Martin, John Patton. <clears throat> These are missionaries who went out to places where there was no Christian influence at all. And uh, after this, we're going to be reading Adoniram Judson's biography. I would encourage you to be involved, be involved in the reading if you're interested, men particularly. Wives, if you want to read, just give a big shove to your husband and say, get on that list and read the book to me like I'm going to do with Yvonne. Reading the book out loud is tremendous. We read this past week about Henry Martin on his way over there. Listen to what he did. He was riding on a boat of Europeans primarily going over to India. Most of them didn't want to have anything to do with the gospel outside the church. And he said, much as they disliked his message, however, they could not deny the sincere love of the man for his parish. It was love for the blaspheming sailors that kept him busy trying to awaken their consciences. Such love is not easily recognized by men of the world, but they could not disregard his unselfish care for the sick and dying who were always to be found in plenty on the troop ships of those days. He said, imagine it now. The sweat and the dirt, the foul smell and the unbearable heat of the lower decks and the Cambridge dawn in his meticulously neat black clothes moving from hammock to hammock, from sick boy to dying man with food and medicine and always with the word of God. The men had never seen anything like it, nor had the officers, and they wrote him off as a mad enthusiast. My friends, he wasn't a mad enthusiast. He was a Christian obeying this commandment. And we have to do likewise. I think in one small way, which we're trying to foster that at Rock Valley Bible Church, is the cookie exchange. It's probably in your bulletin someplace. Right? The idea is simple. You go home, cook a big batch of cookies, whatever, eight dozen or whatever. Yvonne will get five dozen cookies. You put them up into little bags. Certain amount of bags, I'm not sure. We'll figure all that out later. But you take those bags, you bring them to church, there'll be a big table up here, and you spread them out, right? And at the end of service, you pick up a different bag of everything, and all of a sudden, you've got this platter of really nice cookies. And as our custom has been, that we've taken those around to our unsaved neighbors, really just trying to extend to them the love of Christ. We give them our Christmas card, which is always gospel-oriented. And in fact, I remember even one time, we had a great opportunity to talk spiritually with one of our neighbors who, you know, we tried to reach out to him. No spiritual conversation. Come Christmas, they invite us in. Gave us, I think they probably gave us some hot chocolate or something to eat and drink and just had some talk. You know, we talked about God and Christ and she was beginning to get interested and he was through just sharing goodwill of, of love and cookies. It's a simple thing. That's like, that's like that much, but maybe you can do that. I encourage you to do that. It'd be great. Love others by being centered on others and my last point this morning, by sacrificing for them. Open, turn in your Bibles, John chapter 15. And I'll try to make this short. But this is a tremendous passage that speaks about love. 
sacrificing for others. Jesus said, John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You're going to say, how can I love my neighbor to the extreme? Lay down your life. Die, is what he's saying. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't seek great things for himself. He took the apron of a slave, washed the disciples' feet. Though he was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming a humble bondservant and offering himself on the death on the cross and despised death. Ephesians 5 says he gave himself for us. And that's the example that the love that Jesus set for us. And you know what? Stories really abound of those who sacrifice greatly for others. They abound. I mean, into my mind comes the, the firemen walking into the World Trade Centers only to die a few moments later as so the whole thing collapsed. <clears throat> into my mind comes Timothy McCarthy, Secret Service agent, who stepped in front of Ronald Reagan and took a bullet in the abdomen, laying down his life for the president. I think even about this war in Iraq. I, I read... Three different stories of men who were fighting in Iraq this this past year who gave their lives for their troops. Like Corporal Jason Dunham and other Marines were in a firefight with enemies in Karbala. An Iraqi dropped a live grenade among the Marines. Corporal Dunham took off his helmet, covered the grenade, then covered the helmet with his body. He died eight days later. Heroic act. Or Sergeant Rafael Perl. Peralta, fighting in northern Fallujah. With gunshot wounds to the head, he was recuperating. And then, you know, an Iraqi threw a live grenade in there. He took it, he cradled it in his body. Died instantly, but the testimony is he saved half of his troops. Incredible kindness. I read about uh, Paul Smith, Army Sergeant First Class. April 4th, 2004, he stayed his machine gun post protecting the medics. They evacuated the wounded, defending the American position against an assault of 100 Iraqis. He died at the post. I mean, stories abound uh, of people sacrificing their life, and there's no greater love. But what's amazing here is that when Jesus died for us, he didn't die for us as friends or comrades or fellow soldiers. He died for us while we were enemies. Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies... We're reconciled to God. And really, His examples become our example. Jesus came and sacrificed Himself, served us, and thereby demonstrating His love to us, we ought to love and serve others. Isn't that what Jesus said? Right? When He took the apron of a slave and washed the disciples' feet, He said, you should do as I have done. You've got to sacrifice. And maybe your sacrifice doesn't mean um, giving your life. But maybe it means sacrificing time with your family or time with someone else. Rather than sitting in the comforts of your home, maybe it means sacrificing getting out and being with other people. Maybe it means financially to help them. Right? Give to them. Not once, not twice. Maybe ten times giving to those in need. It might mean that you have to do, you do what you don't really like to do. Laundry, changing the diaper, cleaning the mess, vacuuming, washing the dishes, Whatever. Scrubbing the toilets. Doing whatever to be a servant. Sacrificing of your own self. But you know what? What's really interesting here is that sacrifice... There's a very interesting verse. 
One last passage we'll look to and then we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can put forth tremendous sacrifice for people and yet still not love them. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, read at weddings, oftentimes ought to be. It reveals the true character of love. But look at verse 3. I just want to warn you a little bit with your love. You think about, hey, I'm, I'm sacrificing. Look at all this that I'm doing. You might be sacrificing. You might be doing some great works, but you could be doing so without love, and it's not going to help you at all. Look at verse 3, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, think about that. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, not just once given to someone in need, not just twice, not just ten times, but you give everything you have, you go out and you live then in poverty, bare subsistence. That is great sacrifice, right? Or, if I deliver my body to be burned. It's talking there about self-sacrifice totally. I'm the sergeant who takes a grenade and puts it in my, 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 my belly, covers it up. Give my whole body. I sacrifice my life for somebody. That's great sacrifice, probably more than any of us will ever do. If I do that, but look what it says. This is astonishing. I'll shock you. You can do that without loving. But do not have love. You can do those things without loving. Because sacrifice isn't all there is to love, right? Just like obedience to God isn't all there is to loving God. There's this other dynamic going on. And with sacrifice to God, with, for others, there is another dynamic going on. And the dynamic there is it needs to be motivated, generated by love. And if you do all these things, great sacrifice, but don't have love, right? Maybe you're seeking worldly acclaim, or maybe you're seeking a reputation from somebody else. Oh, look at what a good servant he is. Or maybe you're seeking immortality by being sought by generations to tell your great sacrifice that you did, or praise of men, whatever. If you're not doing it motivated by love, look what Paul says, it profits me nothing. So be warned. In your sacrifice to others, it needs to be motivated by love. And I've not gripped totally how to determine when a sacrifice is a loving sacrifice and when it's not. But I simply say this, it's entirely other-centered. It is kind and gracious and seeking the entire well-being of another. Verse 4, love is patient, kind, jealous, not, not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffer, does not rejoice in righteousness, rejoice with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You're talking about a genuine goodwill towards others in your sacrifice. So, when your wife asks you to vacuum, and you go, oh, I don't want to vacuum, that's not loving. Say, of course I will. And if you do it with a grumbling attitude, it profits you zero. But I pray at Rock Valley Bible Church that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we would love our neighbors as ourselves. I've gone long. I thank you for your patience. I promise next week I won't go quite as long. Let's pray together. God, these commandments are are great and they are awesome and they are all fulfilling and all summarizing in our life. I simply pray that you would so work in us and so move us, so enthrall us with the cross of Christ that we could do nothing but love you and we could do nothing but love other people. God, it's your grace that works in us to do this. 
If it's over flesh, it's nothing. The flesh profits nothing. But through love, Paul says, we ought to serve one another. And so, God, I pray that we would be servants who genuinely love and adore and seek to honor the Lord we love. God, we give you thanks and praise and honor and glory, and I pray that you would work these things in the life of Rock Valley Bible Church. I pray in the wonderful name of Christ.